Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with both of my brothers this week, Christian Lewis and Jeremy Sartori, and we are talking Bee Gees. There's a uh, great documentary on HBO Max and uh, how do you, called How Do You Mend a Broken Heart, the story of the Bee Gees, and this is an interesting one for me. This is the one that I've kind of been waiting to make our podcast. I've been waiting to record with you guys for about three years, um, not in anticipation of the doc, but just in uh, just because of my interest and love of the Bee Gees, and also because I think they fall in such a way that it really sort of you know sort of emphasizes what I think we were trying to do when we started this podcast, which is take a look at music from the vantage point of three different generations. So I'm just going to actually throw it out and quickly say Christian, as somebody who was born in 1988, um, a year before the Bee Gees had their final top 20 hit, um, but years after they were sort of cool. banished and into, uh, into a, a pocket of, um, you know, uh, into a dark cave, I should say, after their great 70s heyday. What what was your interaction with the Bee Gees, you know, growing up? Well, it's funny. I mean, I think a, a, an important sort of determinant of what you end up listening to when you are, let's say, 2 to 12 years old is what your parents are listening to. And um, despite the fact that I guess my, my mom uh, would have graduated from college in 77, so, you know, potentially uh, peak sort of disco era uh, fan, you know, it, it really wasn't her, um, her genre. Uh, I was, you know, I, I think I was sort of most intrigued uh, in, in this documentary, I think, sort of about the, the story of the meteoric rise of the genre and its like equally sudden kind of decline. Um, in, in sort of 79 or 80. And, and I think the, the, you know, the consequence of that for me was that like disco was the punchline of a joke, um, my entire childhood. And, you know, I think Saturday Night Fever was probably the best known cultural artifact, um, from, from that period. Uh, and that's partly because it was a, you know, it's a kid friendly movie as well. Um, for the most part, you know, and not really, yeah, not really, not really. Um, it's pretty dark. Yeah, it's a funny the music is wonder. very kid friendly. Yes, I should. The soundtrack is. I think the intro is kid friendly, <laughs> and then yeah. the, the opening scene is kid friendly, and then yeah, it is a little darker than I ever thought it would be when I was young. Well, there's dancing, which means it's for children. Um, yeah, yeah, I think uh, no, it, it, it's a musical. Right, exactly. But uh, yeah, it's funny you say that because I'm realizing I don't think I've ever actually seen it. So it wasn't kid friendly to me or in my house, but I. But I think the, the soundtrack is the soundtrack is, and the images from the movie are so iconic that they that they really extend sort of um, off the reel uh, and have you know worked their way into popular culture like to the point that you don't even necessarily know whether you've seen it or not. You know, it's such a such a sort of ubiquitous totally. uh, like iconic image of disco. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I was gonna, just going to say two things about the movie. One is it's way darker than. The music uh, would represent, and it's also way better. Uh, it's a really, actually, a pretty good movie, but it's a really good sort of like what you would think of as like an indie film slice of life about growing up in Brooklyn in the seventies. It's uh, you know in a Catholic family. Well, just to just to just to jump off that point for a second, like I, I think you know one of the interesting. Um, sort of discussions that that is teased out of this this new Bee Gees documentary is 
you know, about the, the, I think the lyrics uh, for Saturday Night Fever and Staying Alive, for instance, which are really, you know, trying to address sort of difficult social themes. Um, and it's... Urban mm-hmm. plight. Yeah. yeah, it's a little tough. Where uh, I, I'm not sure that the form fully converged with substance, you know? No, it's funny. The meaning is, has been completely whitewashed and, you know, it's basically about New York City in the 70s uh, where they were hanging out and recording and um, it was, you know, the the film itself, and I can get into this more. Actually, Jerry, I wanted to ask you just quickly, um, as somebody who I, you know, remember uh, as a, you know, teenager when you were a, uh, a toddler um, and you were listening to Sesame Street Fever, um, <laughs> what is your, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, what, what was your sort of relationship with this music as you grew up? It's not too far off from Christian's experience. Um, I think a couple of differences, just being, you know, obviously born in the late 70s or 76, so there was no no uh, relevance in that time period. And then in the 80s, it being a total joke, right? So I, I think there was definitely, like, disco is... There was sort of an emphasis of, like, disco being the cheesiest music you could ever listen to. Um, and then rediscovering, like, our... You know, in, in my case, like your, you had an obsession with the Bee Gees. So when I was getting into music, I definitely even heard some of the like more psychedelic stuff, like Massachusetts and songs like that, um, off of like an early greatest hits, you know, the early years or something. And it was better than I would have thought. And then in the '90s, being in high school, there was um, kind of like a nostalgia resurgence, and I, I, some of it had to do with like Rhino Records putting out the like in your face compilations um, which had a lot of like funk and disco and and then you know people just pulling out their parents old vinyl or you know records and things and and so I do remember kind of like in high school partying to a lot of those records like for fun like kind of as a joke but like also ironically yeah yeah, you know but also like you know enjoying it and, and having a good time with it so appreciating the fact that this is like really danceable fun music um, and then just seeing the movie too, finally, and, and I do agree that it, it was like way darker and, and a little a lot more serious than um, that record would have you believe, or the, the cover of that record would have you believe, and and, uh, and kind of just like yeah, depressing movie about like working class family and you know their relief being going out and partying, you know, um, and disco dancing, but uh, but yeah, so I mean there was like some serious cheese there, and then you know you also had just things like Pulp Fiction and stuff, just style wise. That all came back a little bit, you know, the leather jackets and... and the, well, John Travolta you know. himself came back in Pulp Fiction. Exactly, yeah, that was his big comeback, so there was a big big resurgence. So, yeah, I mean, similar to and, Christians, but I think with uh, just being a little older in the 90s, just having, like, a, an appreciation for the, for the music, too, um, in a different way. But then you, I know, obviously, like, influenced by the fact that you always liked them a lot and kind of, uh, and sort of preached the virtues of, uh, of the Bee Gees. Yeah, there, well, to me it was, you know, I mean, for what it's worth, it, you know, I always loved the Bee Gees. I, this album hit at the perfect time for me. I mean, I was eight years old. And um, it is the greatest children's album of all time, yeah. um, you know, despite its intentions. And, uh, you know, they had five number one songs, you know, they had five songs in the top ten when I was in, you know, fourth grade. So it was just like, you, it was inescapable. And then Andy Gibb came, and then more Bee Gees came. And then it was like, and then, you know, the Disco Sucks Literally rally. inescapable. 
But the thing is, is then that tells you know that as Christian said, his mother graduated in the height of this, and most people I know who are that age hate this kind of music. I mean, and I can understand it. It was it was inescapable, and you know it it represented a certain sort of you know mainstream. If you were a thinking person, you probably didn't want to be caught dead listening to you know this shit that everybody else was listening to. And, you know, so I know a lot of people who fall into that camp and it's really just a matter of, you know, 10 years difference. And, but to me, I was always a a hardcore, you know, I loved them. I never stopped loving these songs. And then when I went to high school, I went to, you know, I had a a friend who was really into like the old Bee Gees stuff. Um, You know, he was listening to a lot of the psychedelic 60s stuff, like the creation and the seeds and and all these garage bands, and if you think, you know, if you listen to Bee Gees first, which is ironically their third album, um, it is, you know, it, it hits all those notes with songs like In My Own Time and Every Christian Lionhearted Man, and uh, even To Love Somebody, which I think I read one time is the most covered song in the history of rock music. Um, all of those songs came out in the late 60s and were bona fide hits, but they were always seen as sort of like a, you know, ancillary piece to the British invasion, not only because they were Australian, but also because I think they were just, you know, they were kind of copycats. Uh, they well, just one thing to have a really I was going to sound. I mean, we all like the doc, right? Did anybody not yeah. like it? No, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, that was really good, too. And it kind of captures the three when you touched on it there. There's three kind of parts of their career. It's pretty interesting. I mean, the three arcs. So there's that early 60s period. So I was curious as to when you got into that. And I think I know the culprit. If it was Mike Little um, at Berkshire. And so I definitely got wind of that via you coming home and having that tape probably or something, you know, Um, and being like, oh, this doesn't sound like what I thought the BG sounded like. And then there's the disco years we, we can talk about too. But that early, yeah, that early period was way more fertile than I than I ever knew about. And they were a little bit. I think the British Invasion period. You have like the kind of monkeys sound and and the you know and then the Beatles, obviously, and and you know the the Kinks and all these like huge bands that. But there was the Bee Gees seemed to be on the more commercial side of that. In my, that's what I got to take. That's what I took away, at least, from that, that dog. I think there are a couple of interesting like interesting questions I had about this that I just want to tack onto that um, because I think they're relevant. But, like, you know, how, how, how many other late 60s bands were sort of washed through this, like, you know, had a string of number one hits that almost nobody remembers? And I think the answer is, like, quite a few. You know, it was sort of... There's a few, but not. I wouldn't say quite a few. I would be, like, you know, more like... The zombies on yep. the good side and like the animals. hermits on the sort of, yeah, the animals, although they kind of mutated into like a soul thing um, almost immediately. And, um, you know, there's plenty. I mean, Jerry uh, from Jerry and the Pacemakers died the other day. I mean, he sort of falls into that. Peter and Gordon, Paul Revere Chad and Jeremy. Even Paul Revere and the Raiders are a little later in American, but... Um, they, you know, the, you know, that sort of British invasion. It definitely, it, it definitely had a wider swath of bands than you'll recall, you know, than are immediately, you know, recognizable. But it wasn't, it wasn't like indie rock in the nineties. I wasn't, I wasn't was saying that to, to diminish the accomplishment of, of, um, you know, what what the Bee Gees had done. It was more to more to point out that, like, I think when we 
when we are presented with modern classic rock or oldies radio, um, which is, you know, and I guess I think the, the, this period, this period sort of like straddles the two. It isn't necessarily, um, you know, these bands are, are transforming from away from this sort of, uh, early Beatles era, um, early Stones era. So like Jefferson Airplane. Exactly. But they're, but they're not fully psychedelic yet. Um, you know, it's, it's the transition from black and white to color television, right? It's the, um, Mm -hmm. it's, Like one day these guys are all 15, 15 and wearing matching suits, and the next day they're all in color, um, you know, with their great tufts of it, chest hair next exposed. Year turtlenecks with sideburns, yeah. yeah. <laughs> with their uh, being with being their engulfed in their own mane of, of hair, yeah. And it's just it's fascinating. Like you you see this transformation in images from early Zep, you know, from like first album Zep to to second album Zep, right? Like you see it in the Beatles, of course, um, most prominently in the Stones, but like the the sort of the musical fusion that's taking place that's like transitioning away from more structured pop like ditties that are sort of two and a half to three and a half minutes long to like more complicated druggier psychedelic music is like often kind of like yeah. the part that's left off the radio I guess yeah yeah I mean you don't get a lot of uh, when you're listening to classic rock you don't get a lot of satanic majesty's requests right although I would like that yeah. Yeah, it's sort of yeah. like it's one or the other. But did the Bee Gees ever have that period? And I, I'm, I know you guys, Wyndham's watched the doc a hundred times, and Christian, you just watched it. I, I probably watched it a few weeks ago and did a refresher, but like they never seemed to have that. That's what I kind of meant. Like they sort of floated on the commercial side and never seemed to have that satanic. They, they aped album. it. As, yeah. uh, this one, this one's for you, Christian. They this aped it. Um, <laughs> um, yes, they. Uh, uh, but but I think you know part of it is also their later their later sort of pers- band persona like um, was so sort of so like inextricably linked to like the the disco scene that it it, it sort of I, I guess they were never able to like you could never show them two eras of the Bee Gees but the Bee Gees were only one thing yeah from you that you point don't forward. think of them as evolving right. Yeah, you don't think of them as evolving. You right. think of them as having changed. No, you just yeah, you just think of them. Like, frankly, I, I only thought of them as having shown up in a white jumpsuit, right? And that's that's sort of yeah, like no. That's why I was, that's why I asked you that opening question because I assume that that was your your take on them. I mean, you're a much more you know learned uh, music listener than most, but that's most people's opinion. Yes, yeah. particularly I would imagine most people your age. Certainly, what we grew up with and our you know, friends' parents and my parents didn't like them. Um, and so they really, yeah. I think, suffered from that in, in my era. But, you know, I think I sort of, I get, I started listening to these these early songs again, you know, at your recommendation over the years. And those first couple albums are great. I mean, they, they're yeah. absolutely, and, you know, look, it's it's also, this documentary does a wonderful job of, of bringing in Nick Jonas and Justin Timberlake and Eric Clapton and a lot of people yeah, who've sort of, who've been through this experience, but who, you know, are supremely qualified to talk about vocal harmonies. My favorite, my favorite interview in the whole thing has got to be Noel Gallagher, yeah. which he, who's always, I was going to say, he has, he has the most insightful line. Absolutely. Where he talks about nothing. You just can't match the sound of brothers harmonizing or family members, sorry, harmonizing, which makes a ton of sense when you think about it. I mean, you think about like the Carter family or just like, you know, these, 
There's a Jackson's. show in that genealogy. Osmonds, Jackson's right. Yeah. Yep. That like Jackson Five just kicks these tones that you can't match, right? With a, uh, somebody's not your bloodline. But well, it, it can't yeah, be. It's not that it's, an, it's, it's an instrument yeah. nobody else has. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that I you know, and and I will quickly give a couple of uh, of points that that really that I was informed of through this documentary because I as somebody who's you know, such a fan. Um, there wasn't a ton for me to learn from this. I love the old footage. I love, you know, I mean, I'm always going to enjoy it. But there were a few things that I learned from this documentary that I didn't know. And there's a few things I've pieced together since I watched it. One is that, um, and this was, the, the, the one, my one criticism of the documentary is that it doesn't really go into the sort of lower points as hard as I would have liked it I to. I was going to, yeah, ask about that. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but we'll get to that later. Um, the two things that I really recognized from this documentary, one is that the Bee Gees were a band, and that is kind of surprising to me. I don't mean that you know Robin, Barry, and Morris weren't Mama a band. Always knew that. Did not know that they had the same guitar, drums, keys on um, all their records from basically the early 70s through the early 80s so everything from you know words to you know uh you you know night fever um and beyond um they had the 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 same band which was alan kendall on guitar dave byron on drums and blue weaver who i this is the thing i didn't realize and didn't recognize is that you know blue weaver was the keyboard player for mata hoople who i think had some of the best keyboard rock piano in the history of rock music, and I did not realize that he was the the man behind the keyboard on the beat all these BTS records, and I thought that was kind of cool. I think part of the reason that yeah, that's that lost on me was the fact that you know obviously later they are so obviously like splicing tape and recording drum loops, and like I, I definitely want to talk about this because I think it's such a cool innovation. I didn't realize that they were so responsible for that. No, I think it was. Interesting to see the documentary's treatment of this, suggesting that nobody had ever cut up a tape and, you know, but and 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 sort of patched together drum loops before. George, George Martin had kind of done that, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it was simultaneously by this point happening um, in sort of early, like, funk and, and hip-hop settings as well. So it's like, or like proto, you know, club scenes. But, like, I, I, I do think it's right to say that, like, it hadn't been mainstreamed they're on the early end of it, yeah, certainly. Yeah, and uh, and you know, and and I think uh, took it to number one on the charts. There's no doubt about that. But I think that one question, you know, one sort of effect that that has as well is to sort of make you question uh, whether the like rhythm section is just fully automated, you know. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it before, nope. but it's like the vocal harmonies are the part that are obviously that are sort of like front and center, and then it's sort of. I think, you know, the, the rest of the track bleeds into the background a little bit, partly because you don't know whether it's being played live. I've heard it a million times. Yeah. But I think it's more repetition. I think it because, you know, this is prior to electric drums or, or you know, even 808 being invented. Of course. Um, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's all live musicians, all live strings, all live horn or not all live strings, but all live horns. But, by, but if the first time uh, you hear part. it is in 1994, you don't know that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's why like I think a track, it's so awesome. Like a tape track, yeah, which it, I mean it is, but it sounds. But like I mean that with the repetition of hearing it, like I think a lot of times, like the track just bleeds into the background because it's like it's so familiar 
that it's like hearing happy birthday song or something. You know, well, I just wouldn't it's, assume it's that like, they had a know. that they had a consistent drummer. I would have assumed that they had you know session musicians or whomever. Right. It sounds like pop yeah. music in that way, where the band has sort of disappeared. But even pop stars. To be fair, they had did bands back then. <laughs> they did to be to be fair. They did work with a million session guys too. Yeah. I mean, all of the Picaros, everybody in Toto was in this band. Um, but those three guys that were sort of the main backbone and then Morris on bass, who was a pretty ripping bass player. Uh, if you think about it, I mean, nobody probably in history, you know, with the exception of maybe, you know, Bootsy and a couple of people have made more asses move in their life than Morris Gibb. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, like one that I've found the tape looping thing really, really interesting as well and I think it's a the one like knock I had on the dock and when you touched on it was that transition from fame in the in the late 60s early 70s to what obviously was you know typical rock star debauchery and and egos where you know everybody wanted to go solo sort of and and, you know obviously drugs and alcohol played a part and all that and it just sort of kind of whitewashes that. Oh, those were dark times. Anyways, and then, you know, we go down to Miami um, where Klaus was recording and, you know, they started to kind of really change their sound and, and vibe based on the times. And I think that was kind of interesting too. Like very few groups do that where it's, it's, it's successfully where you, you know, it was very, they were very much surface in the way of like, this is the, the sound that's going on right now, um, you know, and, and incorporating themselves into that sound, I felt like like they got really into like you know American dance music and what was going on. Fuck yeah. Um, and and then I also think too, like Timberlake kind of pulled out the the gem, which obviously their voices are, are you know key and, and throughout the whole thing is, is the main thing. But just how much their vocals are instruments, you know, horns and and you know fill it, filler even you know, breaks and things like that. Like their voices really are like, you know, their own instruments Horn above all the, yeah, it's, it's great. You know? And I think that that's where they kind of like, when he figures out that he can sing in that falsetto, that's pretty amazing too. You know, that he can dislocate his jaw, remove 18 <laughs> teeth, and jaw. get out. Yeah. <laughs> I, that was actually the number two point I was going to bring up, which is that, you know, I, the thing I noticed you know, sort of on my own without really having it pointed out in the doc and, you know, but going back and watching, Robin is really the lead singer of the Bee Gees early on. And yeah. it becomes Barry's... He was the handsome one. ...signature sound. Yeah, well, he was. <laughs> well, that Robin was the lead singer of, of the Bee Gees early on and that it became Barry's band. And, and Barry discovers this falsetto voice that he has... Um, uh, when they're doing uh, Main Course, which was an album that predates Jeremy in our household by about a year, and that me and my mother and my sister, our sister, um, listened to endlessly in 1975 with Jive Talk and Nights on Broadway, Fanny Be Tender. Um, it's just a, a phenomenal album, and obviously the precursor to Saturday Night Fever. Um, you want to take a quick break and, and give a listen to... Uh, uh, jive talking which is kind of becomes the blueprint for the disco phase sure sounds good
Welcome back to Brother, 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 where today we are talking uh, The Bee Gees, new documentary on HBO Max, uh, How to Mend a Broken Heart. Um, and we were just uh, just getting into a discussion about the 1975 soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. Uh, and here, you know, I think that the, the band took um, the advice of, of Eric Clapton uh, uh, from, from Cream at that time um, and moved down to Miami to record their first album since the um, split at Criteria Studios in 1969. And I think, you know, part of what this documentary does really well is set up the importance of this as a as a comeback record, really, for, uh, for the Bee Gees. They were going to have to, they had to find a new groove. Um, you know, they'd been, uh, they'd been carried along, um, by, uh, by their record label for a couple of years through a couple of, uh, tough albums and, and sort of a decline in, in popularity. And, uh, you know, I think they really saw this as an opportunity to rebrand themselves and, um, come out as an R&B band. Uh, and so I think they were, um, you know, recording uh, Nights on Broadway, I believe, and producer Arif Martin um, asked that that somebody, you know, sort of scream a harmony in the background, which uh, which led Barry to lean over to the microphone and, and sort of like test out that falsetto, and everybody just sort of stopped, and you know, the, it really does seem like there was this this inflection point or this moment in time where where everybody sort of uh, realized like wait, do that again. You know, what was, what was that noise? So, so Wyndham, I wanted to ask you, like, how did this falsetto change music? It's not the first time we'd ever heard a falsetto in music, but it certainly is, certainly is a distinctive sound and, and one that like, you know, a a split second of, uh, of tape, you know, or recording of that. And you just know it's the Bee Gees, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's, that's a one sound that, that sort of distinguishes them from every one of their contemporaries. And the fact is that, you know, the, the chronology is a little different than you said. If they had put out some albums in the 70s and they had actually had some hits, you know, Words and, and um, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart, actually, I think believe was their last hit before they, they sort of shift. So they go down in 75 at the behest of Eric Clapton, as you said, and they record Main Course in Miami, and it is, uh, as they say in the doc, you know, the, the clickety-clack of going over the bridge to the recording studio that, that gave them the, the idea for the rhythm track on Jive Talk, and, and um, you know, that, that sort of was the, uh, the epiphany moment, and then the second epiphany was Barry discovering um, the falsetto, which uh, I, I would equate to Dylan going electric, or uh, um, the Beatles discovering drugs. Barry's Barry's um, upper register going electric. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, uh, you're right though that that rhythm that rhythm section moment was one that I'd forgotten, and and I think like was was just so cool to uh, to to watch. Uh, uh, who was it? Who was actually interviewed and talking about that? Oh, Mark Ronson. Barry. <laughs> oh, Mark Ronson. Yeah. Yeah. Who was who was like you know who who played out the the drum part on his on his knees or whatever and you just and I was like oh oh my god yeah that is like that is just such a uh, that's just got like so much you know so much movement built into it it's just like it, it's just this incredible um, sort of kinetic sound. Yeah, it was cool to see John talking outside of the context of BG's disco land because you realize just how how groovy and how like forward that song was you know without you know in the context of real time like as they showed it in the doc which was awesome 
Yeah, I mean, this is a period when you know a lot. You know, the I always talk about this with you guys because the charts were so weird. You know, you were getting like fool in the rain and you light up my life next to each other on the pop charts or don't fear the reaper and and you know uh billy don't be a hero basically like next to each other on the pop charts and it's just a weird time you know where everything is kind of in flux and uh gets galvanized behind disco obviously for a couple years but um you know the bg's cracked back in and and as morris said in the doc you know this is the how can you mend a broken heart guys like we didn't know they had any groove and fact is that they really, their existence as a as a post Beatles, you know British Invasion style band was really the miscalculation. This was where they were home. You know they're an R and B band. They they have a really good, even as musicians, they had a really good sense of of the groove. But also, um, you know, the, just their harmonies were so perfect for for dance music. And then Barry discovers the falsetto and. God, it's all over. But basically, what people forget is that Main Course comes out in 75, and then um, Children of the World comes out in 76. Saturday Night Fever comes out in 77. So it's um, it's a little later than usually than most people think. And it was summer of 77, and it was just, again, I mean, I can't even explain to you guys how, because there were so few outlets, and this was so prominent, how inescapable this music was. It was everywhere. Um, every car was playing the same songs. Every, you know, everywhere you went, it was this record. And the funny thing is, is that this was not, this was the Bee Gees recording a new album, which included Night Fever, Stand Alive, you know, the, the, you know, the, the famous tracks from, um, you know, from Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, Robert Stigwood, their manager, who was a complete nut and, you know, 70s character, uh, Australian guy, um, he was kind of, you know, toiling in obscurity at the record label, and uh, they were like, well, the Bee Gees are trying to make a comeback, let's give it to Stigwood, he's Australian. What ha- That marriage was just perfect. It was, you know, puffy and and biggie you know it's like um you know it was the right hype man at the right time and the fact is he was producing a movie um because music was sort of his sidelight he was producing a movie called saturday uh saturday night fever based on a uh, new york magazine article about a working class guy who goes to the disco to blow off steam and they you know that obviously turns into a movie that he said what do you think about making your new songs, the soundtrack for this movie, they agreed to it, and the rest is history. That having been said, uh, their next endeavor, which is, to me, the biggest flaw in this documentary, their next endeavor was so ill-advised. They were on Mount Olympus, unassailable. They were the kings of the world. They decide in a collective fugue of cocaine that they are going to star in a live-action movie of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band with Peter Frampton. And I want you guys to go watch this at some point because it is the biggest shit show on earth. As a, as a, like a nine-year-old Bee Gees fan... Did they even talk about it in the doc? I'm trying to no, remember. I don't think no, they did. Yeah. It went wow. completely yeah. unmentioned. And I think yeah. that's the other... Besides the Disco Sucks rally, that is really the inflection point of when they became... Persona non when they hit the, the state fair circuit, <laughs> yeah, they didn't even hit the state fair circuit. They hit 
they hit the witness protection circuit. Yeah, um, I was going to say they were going to get like, beat up. <laughs> they were, nobody wanted them. It was like, go the fuck away, please. Well, I thought too, I mean, like all things, and I think they sort of touched on this, but like all things cool and underground, um, which disco sort of was initially and then became, you know, mainstream. By the time that New Yorker article came out, was probably the beginning of the end anyways, right? When you, you start to have like things like the New Yorker writing articles about a scene. No, it was the New York Magazine article. And honestly, it was uh, that was a precursor. I mean, it really was the Saturday Fever thing erupted like Nirvana. It was one yeah. of those things that was unexpected. And, and then a million copycats. And then it became so massive that it became tiresome. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought that was... I mean touch on the disco sucks thing quickly because it's the second time I've seen a, a, a AR kind of went through a thing where I focused on that. I, I the podcast, um, lost notes, the 1980 oh, yeah. does one on, um, Grace, Grace Jones and her first kind of post disco album, but really talks a lot about that event being just a death nail. So when you, you were more aware of that event than Christian and I, I thought well, there yeah, were some really interesting things in both, but, you know, one, just kind of the the underlying current of racism and homophobia. Well, the, the, yeah, the entire thing seems like a giant, I mean, it's like something we would be very familiar like with in the, in the modern era. <laughs> yeah, it's right. It's yeah. like it's one giant sort but, of vaguely racist dog whistle. It's perfect. It's the perfect analogy for what's going on right now. I mean, it was, and the funny thing that, that I never hear anybody, you know, sort of, mention is that this was this was a ploy to sell tickets to a shitty baseball team you know this was the chicago white Sox in 1979 (laughs) this is the richie sisk era you know white Sox, and they were they sucked and they were trying and bill veck their their owner was famous for for sort of uh you know these sort of um, antics you know these antics, but just these ploys to like you know underpay players and then try and get people in the in the stadium by doing these weird gimmicky sh- you know things like and uh, Chicago DJ who you know sort of you know, precursor to shock jocks decides that he's going to promote this disco sucks rally and the underpinnings of it certainly in retrospect are you know, sort of racist and, and homophobic because uh, disco music is black music and it is and it was the first time, you know, Motown was pretty mainstream. Um, well, it was also popular, gay, gay nightclub music too, you know. Exactly. Gay nightclubs, you know. Oh, 100%. I mean, this is Studio 54. And, you know, you're talking about the Midwest and the late 70s and pretty depressing times. And uh, so they have this idea to have a disco sucks rally um, in the in between two two games of a doubleheader at Comiskey Park, and uh, needless to say, it uh, I think you guys have all seen the footage. Uh, they blew up a bunch of disco records. Which uh, the funny thing in this documentary, and I'll let Jared tell you, you know, sort of carry this one, but uh, you know, the sort of realization of what was actually going on. Yeah, well, I, I and I'm spacing on the DJ. It was I don't know if it's uh, Steve Frankie something. Knuckles or yeah, or or Carl. Um, from uh, early house DJs from Chicago, who obviously house music came out of disco music as well. But yeah, I mean, just his comment, he was working as like a, you know, concession guy in, in Kaminsky, and, and it was, uh, you know, just looking at the records. And <laughs> I loved his sort of take when he's like, I started to realize, he's like, hey, wait a minute, that's like a, you know, a... Um, it's like a Marvin, Marvin Gaye, Gaye record. record. That's yeah. it, yeah. Exactly. He's like, it's, a, it's Curtis Mayfield, wait a second. He's like, 
Yeah, this isn't like, disco. Fucking this is disco. black. <laughs> yeah, this is just and, like and, anything and, I mean, black. That, yeah, and that's really and the the, the 1980s Lost Notes really touched on that too, and um, and just the fact that like this is a pretty hateful thing, you know. And uh, and I just yeah, I never had in the past thought about that way. It looked like a bunch of uh, you know meatheads running around doing stupid shit, but. Um, but never really kind of saw the underpinning of, of just like how divided those, and I do, you know, and it's, and when I talk about this and I think Christian, you d- dealt with it a little bit as well, but definitely more so in, in our age group and wins, especially there was, despite the radio win that of the late seven, early eighties, late seventies or whatever, there really was kind of a, a class divide with music. Like you were a rock guy, you were a disco guy. Absolutely. You know I mean? There was just definitely like a, established sort of line boundaries yeah look no further yeah. than heavy metal parking lot for proof you know um yeah. the stuff well, like i mean the, the fact that mtv <laughs> that cbs records had to blackmail mtv into playing black artists by by withholding thriller right yeah michael jackson was not getting played on mtv <laughs> you know like what yeah. the fuck that's crazy but the uh, you know the disco sucks rally and I and I also think Sergeant Pepper's like which I said you know I dragged my nine year old ass to the movie theater with Sarah and probably a couple of the Dicks and and uh, some Allens and and uh, we went and sat through that and then as a nine year old I mean I was a, probably a pretentious nine year old but I was like this movie fucking sucks <laughs> like this is the worst thing I've ever seen and I was excited. To go see the Bee Gees in Sgt. Pepper's. Uh, I remember the exact theater like watching I saw the that. recording of Tusk as a well, movie. So it sounds like maybe there was, you know, th- there's a little bit of license taken here. It's easy to blame a sort of like exogenous, you know, like uh, sort of uh, change, change in the environment for their decline, but truth is it was a combination of of a couple of bad choices Over, and um, overexposure and bad choices yeah yeah and so okay and fair enough fair enough but w- one of the one of the really like remarkable things i think about the way they they characterize this is that like you know that's an opportunity to go away and i think instead they they it's difficult to know sort of how how accurately this was portrayed but it was sort of like they they made the third stage of their career, the sort of the songwriting stage of their career, seem like a, a natural or happy landing pad for them. And and I you know the sort of the golden parachute like out of disco. And like I, I guess the hard part for me was that I I still I just I find it hard to believe that like they would have been sort of happy or or content with with that like with that status. I think you know when you hit it big and you are performers like they were from the age of. 12 or 13 or whatever in Barry's case anyway you know it, it, it was probably all they ever wanted to be on stage and to be like adored by stadiums full of fans um you can Listen, hear how much of you know how how uh sort of how much like reverence they had for for that for those moments so you know Wyndham do you think that they were happy when they were just record like when they were writing songs for Barbara Streisand no um, I think they were, I think Barry and Barbara, that Barry and Barbara album, Guilty, which is a great album, that came out, that was not post-backlash. That was within the period of popularity. I mean, that's how popular they were. Uh, the Bee Gees put out an album in 79, and Guilty comes out in 79, and they're both huge hits. And 
then, you know, I, like I said, I think uh, the Disco Sucks rally in 79, I don't think that, I think that is much of an inflection point as, you know, sort of other moments in history where people point to it because it's convenient. But the fact is that last year, 79, was like the com- completed the overexposure portion of the show. Andy Gibb started having hits on the radio. Um, so you had the Bee Gees, Andy... Barry and Barbara, and all three of the all three records are massive hits, and this is, it's it's just it's too much. It's just oversaturation. They put out an album in '81 that nobody, you know, and that was the that was the backlash. People were like, "Fuck this shit." It's actually not a bad record, but they, I think, they recognized, and they put records out through the '80s, but they recognized that. Um, they needed to kind of go underground, get the satin suits off, and uh, they had a, Barry Gibb had a shit ton of success writing for other people. I mean, Islands in the Stream, Heartbreaker by Dionne Warwick, a bunch of others, and they kind of went away. And I think, too, probably Andy's mounting drug problems, Morris's mounting drug problems, and the amount of money and success that they had experienced kind of drove them all apart. So I think, uh, you know, it was uh, it was the greatest, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, so to speak. Yeah, and that was my one complaint with the um, with the doc a little bit. And I thought it was fantastic, and I do have to jump, but you guys can, can continue to, to wrap it up. But I wanted to be on this one because I enjoyed it so much. But I did think just, you know, and you can tell there's a lot of sadness, right? And, and uh it's a Not very that melancholy. They into that or roll, yeah, roll around in the glass. But I didn't think they sort of they sort of just and maybe it's just privacy purposes or whatever. But even Andy Gibbs' death and stuff, they did seem to kind of just touch on it and then move on. Yeah, and, but make it sort of not as, as impactful. And it certainly because I, I think Christian has a good point on you know them going underground, but not really. It, it, it was almost both times, right? They they had you know, massive success in two periods and then over excess and, and drugs and, and things came into play and the brother's death. And, and just to give a little background on that, Andy Gibb was never a BG. He, no, I know, but he was, you no, know, no, no, I know, but and, he, yeah. he was, he was going to be one. Um, right. he was a, you know, sort of a teenage heartthrob. He was being groomed as an adolescent. <laughs> Absolutely. hundred percent was. And, um, then, you know, he came over and had massive success, started dating movie stars, TV stars, and um, just cocaine got the better of him. He was dead at 32 in 1987, and or 88, sorry. And, um, Killed himself, right? No, he died of an overdose. Um, okay, but he might as well have. Uh, he yeah. was, you know, um, died the same day as Divine, as a yeah, trivia, a little bit of okay. trivia. Uh, one of the worst days of my life as an adult, but uh, John Waters fans. Yeah, I am. Um, but the fact that Andy died, and I think they felt very responsible for it because they sort of they did groom him. Yeah. They and he didn't have the you know six years of of playing you know the, the shitty stuff. bar circuit in Australia to to sort of keep you know to sort of warm him up. He was a massive rock star at the age of 19. I'm going to jump off guys and uh, okay. enjoy talking to BGs with you. Go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you. And uh, I will, I'm going to throw my, my quarter in the jukebox though for the, uh, the playlist and I'm going to do a 
what is it? Bloody Mary Morning by Willie Nelson off Faces and Stages. And, uh, nice. Talk soon. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, we, Christian, we, you and I can wrap this up. I mean, I can talk, as you can obviously see, I can talk for the next six years about uh, VGs. And, but I did, you know, those were the, the, the one flaw, the, the one major flaw of the documentary, as far as I was concerned, is they kind of glossed over um, their worst um, uh, their worst output, their most tragic moments. And, uh, you know, I thought Barry was very melancholy throughout, but at the same time didn't really address, address, you know, the hardest things to address. So how about yourself? Yeah, no, I, I think the, the verdict on this is, is that it's a must watch for, uh, for anybody who, who digs music docs. You know, it's, it's such a, um, such a, uh, a well-told story, um, about the, you know, obviously a, a career that sort of ebbed and flowed had its, had, had its highest moments truly at the peak of the mountain. Um, this was the most popular band on earth for, for a very admittedly kind of short period of time. Um, but, uh, but I think the, the best and sort of, you know, most exciting part of this is, is the reveal that, that these guys were, were just incredibly serious, incredibly high quality musicians, um, gifted. Yeah. And not a sort of circus act, uh, that, that unfortunately, um, the, like, you know, commercialization of, of disco, um, kind of turned them into. Yeah. Well, now that you're in peak wedding, uh, your peak wedding age, you will never go to a wedding without hearing one of these songs. And, uh, I know that sounds cheesy, but that's, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, it's, uh, but you know, you can't go anywhere without hearing these songs. They're like, you'll never, you'll never go to a dance party without one of these songs. <laughs> like it just, no, that's true. it just doesn't happen. Um, you know, it's, it's, you'll never a, clear the dance floor with one of these songs. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, to, to continue with, uh, with, with Jeremy's selection of a song for the playlist, um, and then we can, uh, we can wrap it up by talking about what we're listening to, but, you know, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to stay within the, the Bee Gees lane here. Um, and, uh, and I think put on to love somebody. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, cause it's just awesome. <laughs> and it really is, you know, it could have, it really could have been anybody singing that song, but it, it belongs on there. It has been covered. It was written for Otis Redding originally. <laughs> Um, and it was, it has been covered by everyone from Graham Parsons to, you know, God, I couldn't, I can't even start to, uh, everybody who's ever done Americana has covered that song. Um, and it's a great choice. One of the great songs ever written. I am... By the way, also the perfect uh, example of something that I might go to the mat arguing is the greatest song ever written uh, after <laughs> after a couple drinks at a party. <laughs> um, I'm going to stay in the Bee Gees lane, uh, but switch it up a little bit. And uh, I'm actually going to throw on Good Times by Chic. Nice. I like it. So what do you, let me ask you a question just in, in closing. Oh, well, let me ask you one first. Wyndham, what oh, are you that? listening to? <laughs> Oh, thank you for asking. Um, I'm still reading Shuggy Bane and uh, really enjoying it uh, thoroughly. Enjoying? Uh, even <laughs> Enjoying, yeah. Um, because I, I read A Little Life a couple months ago, and I know what excruciating reads are. Um, oh. and that, it is. And, um, I'm really in, I'm enjoying Lupin, uh, the new French 
series on Netflix, uh, the sort of uh, French master of disguise, uh, gentleman thief character. Uh, it's just, it's fun. It is the kind of thing I was talking to friends last night. Um, it's the kind of show that makes me not want to find the flaws in it. It's just fun and surfacy and awesome. Well, I too uh, am I'm reading Shuggy Bane. Uh, it is a real challenge, and I think we'll devote a little bit more time um, to to this when we when both we finish. when we both finished it. But you know, there's we there's can do no... a Glasgow we can do a Glasgow episode of uh, Brother Brother Brother. Excellent. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's make it happen. We'll get, um, we'll get David Kendall back on. Douglas Stewart. Uh, his first novel, um, Man Booker Prize winner, uh, and you know I think one of the most striking features that really grabs you immediately is just the sort of um, phonetic like patois that he writes in of you know um, which is peculiar to a you know a very specific uh, a time a place a class you know in early or like late nineteen seventies early nineteen eighties poor Catholic Glasgow. And it's just, uh, uh, it's the best, it's the best sort of phonetic, phonetic freezing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, it's, it's really like the best, uh, the best sort of example of, um, uh, of, of like a dialectic, you know, phonetic writing that I've seen since, um, Brief History of Seven Killings. Yeah. Which was, um, also, I find myself thinking in that, in that Glaswegian accent last night, which is just weird. It's like dreaming in French. Oh, good. Um, just, good. Did you did you become an, an abusive alcoholic immediately? Um. Uh, not an abusive one. No. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah. Uh, I no. Think... I mean, it really is like it's a grim place, and you know, I think you you sort of start to feel suffocated by like the lack of opportunity um, and just how how personally damaging it is to to just about everybody the... living in it. The one thing I will I will say in uh, about Glasgow, which made me you know laugh, because you know they they talk about the Glaswegian smile, which is you know if you've fucked over a drug dealer or whatever, you basically get cut from ear to ear. So they cut open both your cheeks, and you are scarred for life. And it is called the Glaswegian smile. And I was like, oh yeah, right. I think everybody has that. It's probably called the Belfast smile and the you know Bogota smile as well. And uh, Funnily enough, it's actually just called the Glaswegian smile. So, yeah. Um, yeah, they are, uh, they are, um, uh, I guess, championship caliber uh, sadists. They're real leaders uh, in their field. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, <laughs> lovely. Um, no, it's a it's a rough and and there is a there is a uh, a very ugly um, scene in the book uh, which which will reacquaint you with this idea if, if you were uh, unfamiliar with it. Um, but I would also add, um, I've been, uh, I've actually seen uh, quite a lot of movies lately, um, but uh, but one, let's see, I would mention that sort of came out of the archives on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day maybe, um, was, uh, was Lost in Translation, um, which is just a, a wonderful, wonderful movie. Modern it was classic. Yeah, um, Sofia Coppola's first sort of big, uh, like I would say, break into the mainstream. I think you know, um, Virgin Suicides was 
her first full-length feature um, a couple years earlier, uh, which had obviously a great soundtrack, Lost in Translation, similarly great soundtrack, and starring uh, Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray. But just a wonderful take, I think, on the experience of the sort of anonymity um, that comes with being a... Traveler. Yeah, with with being a traveler in a country that truly doesn't doesn't speak a a ton of English. Um, And, you know, I think the the effect that that has on your identity in a really short period of time. Like, it just Mm -hmm. sort of allows you to feel like you are, you know, moving about the world completely unnoticed. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think it, it sort of lets you... Yeah, it lets you do certain things or behave in certain ways that you might not otherwise. My, so it's a wonderful, my friends, wonderful story. My friends have a term uh, called little while friends. And, um, you know, it's sort of the people you meet on planes or the people you meet when you're traveling or the someone you have an hour-long conversation with in an in a, in a airport bar. And I always like that term because it, I've always wanted to put a finer point on those conversations. You have great conversations in these places. And... Uh, and it's it you know then you don't remember who the person is for the rest of your life, yeah, yeah. But you know I think there there are sort of moments uh, moments like that 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 sort of transcend and and you know can actually be pretty formative um, experiences. So mm-hmm. I think uh, it's sort of it's a story about two people I'm, who are in in you know different forms of of crisis, right? Like so midlife crisis and like. Uh, sort of early 20s, what am I going to do with my life crisis, but who sort of are able to bond over that, like, weird experience. Um. I'm making a documentary right now based on a a situation that was conveyed to me at 2 o'clock in the morning at a bar in in the Caribbean. So um, there you have it. These things are, are formative. That's right. So I think with that, we'll uh, we'll wrap it up and be back in a couple of weeks uh, with our next episode. All right. Thanks. Good talking to you. Yeah, like God bless the Bee Gees. <laughs> I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.